0: In the end, the Queen is an emblem of our great nation. The Queen is a wonderful individual and these people in Magdalen College, right, uh, they should be ashamed of themselves. Exercising my own right to free speech, I think those students are utterly pathetic. To get triggered Mm. by a very well-known portrait of the Queen, do they get triggered every time they receive a letter with a stamp on or spend a £20 note in a shop? I know. It's absolutely outrageous. As we record this, the front page of the Daily Mail screams outrage as Oxford students plan to axe Queen. In reality, a group of postgrads voted to take down a portrait of the Queen in a single common room, in a single Oxford College, because of the portrait's association with the UK's colonial history. This is only news because the right-wing press made a deal of it. The students didn't do this to get into the news. The students, on their conscience, said, actually, you know what, this is
1: really strange. Why would you have a good picture of the Queen? This is there's not a place for this, and took a vote and decided. So, why are you asking me about a picture of the Queen in the current because, times when the picture that we're talking because about? I, I, case, because as, as currently the host of this show, I'm allowed to take the conversation whichever way I choose.
0: Should the Education Secretary say, be worrying speech. about an issue like I mean, it's a small group of students, they've decided they want to take down a picture. Whether it's the interior design of a student common room or athletes taking the knee in support of Black Lives Matter, by the time you hear this podcast, a new outrage will have emerged. The people booing have now become the headline in this. And that's all we're talking about. Good. Well, they've taken away from the what the what these guys are trying to yeah. trying Good. to show out. Good. Good.
2: You are a white privileged male
0: who has no feelings. Oh. Really. I mean, can I just? I can't I, help what I am. I was born like this. It's an immutable so you, characteristic. So, so to call me a white privileged male is to be racist. You continue to trash her. Okay, I'm done with this. No, no,
1: no. Sorry. No. Oh, uh, Sorry. So, do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, maybe, not my. No, own, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm being. Sorry, can't do this. This is
0: absolutely
1: diabolical behaviour.
0: How did we get here? In the middle of a pandemic, why do these debates take up so much media space? And how should progressives respond? Welcome back to a new season of the Weekly Economics podcast. Super excited to be back with you all. And in this episode, we're talking about culture wars. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Hannah thomas Uase, Principal Consultant at Align. Hi, Hannah. Hello. And I'm also really pleased to have David Waring with us, who is a Senior Teaching Fellow at SOAS and an Associate Lecturer at Birkbeck. Hi, David. Hello. Right, so let's dive in. We're going to start with the basics. So, Hannah, your organisation, Align, co-authored a report for NEON all about culture wars. So, for people who haven't heard the term before... Let's start at the beginning. What is a culture war?
2: Yeah, sure. And that I think is the the crux of the matter. Um, for the report, we interviewed over twenty people who act as spokespeople and are uh, often in these so-called culture wars debates. And the conclusion that we came to after talking to all these people was that it's a very amorphous term. People use it to mean whatever they want it to mean. It first gained prominence in the 90s in America, trying to describe the polarizing issues around gun control and abortion. And then after that, it was imported into the UK and fueled by the public discourse around the loony left and PC gone mad. But now I think in current discourse, it goes beyond that. And it's whenever especially conservative commentators talk about culture wars, I think they mean it as a disparaging shorthand, just to signal that whatever it is that they're talking about, it shouldn't be taken very seriously. So yeah, I think, I think that's where we landed.
0: Yeah. So the concept, as you mentioned, kind of originated in the US of culture wars, but has been imported over here. Hannah, would you say that there are specific ways in which it's distinct in a British context? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think the main difference is um, the debate format
2: that we see here. And there's some really good observations by our interviewees about the role that the BBC especially plays in the culture wars and how it's fought over by by the right and left sort of claim it as a public platform in a way that in the States, that's just not possible. You know, they don't have sort of public broadcast or, or supposedly impartial broadcast in the same way that we do. And so I think that lends itself to a really different way of the two sides talking to each other and trying to persuade the middle.
0: Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. David, just to bring you in, because I know you're someone who spends a lot of time, you know, in the media having to battle a lot of these debates yourself. Could you yeah. give us some examples of kind of culture war issues just to kind of really help listeners understand what we're talking about?
1: Um, I'm just thinking about what sort of things I've discussed when I've been on on the air. I mean, the toppling of the Colston Statute was one. Just to tie us back to what we said a moment ago, this sense in which the cultural term was, right, serves to kind of trivialise these things, the things you find yourself talking about are about emancipation struggles, you know, whether it's the black emancipation struggle or wider anti-racist struggle, struggle for trans rights, and how they manifest themselves in debates around... Culture, history, um, the arts, representation, and the fact that we're talking at that level of whether a statue should be up or not, or whether a national anthem should be sung, or whether the picture of the Queen should be up, it can make it feel quite superficially trivial, you know. But this, these symbols are linked to deeper struggles. I mean, the, the statue of Colston came down shortly after the killing of George Floyd because people understood the link between. Having a colonial past, racism that came out of that, and continuing not to tackle the colonial legacy. People understood the link between that and the killing of George Floyd and much else. So, yeah, it's, it's often about things like that it's symbolic representations. It's linked to wider issues. I think talking about it in terms of culture wars can, can often kind of diminish those issues and the importance of. Them.
0: Mm, and that's part of what it serves to to achieve, right? and we're going to we're going to talk about that in the next question. But just to kind of stay with the media for a second and what this looks like, obviously that's kind of the battleground where a lot of these things get played out. Hannah, in your opinion, do you think that the media's the media industry's business model encourages this kind of conflict?
2: Yeah, absolutely. or or at least the business model that it's found itself in, which is that you know, as people don't buy as many papers, they're having to rely on advertising. And so, they are trying to scour Twitter for stories that will drive clicks and likes and engagement. Um, so I think we're seeing a form of, you know, extremism for want of a better word that is driven by the media trying to drive engagement. I think for large sections of the media the fueling of the culture wars doesn't come from malice. It comes from just really short-termist thinking around, you know, how they're going to keep their jobs and how they're going to get commissioned for the next article. So then what we see is journalists, like I said, yeah, just scouring Twitter, repurposing and repackaging them for sensationalist headlines and going out and trying to find spokespeople with radical views to come in and and sort of provoke so that they can edit that into a, you know, 10 to 30 second clip that will be circulated around on Facebook. And I think that is, it's a major structural issue that we face.
0: Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Attention is, is the currency, right? David, same question, but also um, there's a new TV news channel that some listeners may know about due to launch this month, GB News. Could you tell us how this is likely to affect the culture wars? What would you say on that one?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think there's a lot in what Hannah says about there being a kind of outrage economy. And in a way, that's not new. I mean, you know, we've had that with sort of talk radio and stuff like that, and there'll be more of it from GB News. I mean, the tabloids have been playing this well for 100 years, you know, giving people their daily hate, as the phrase was. I mean, there's that. But I've, I think it's a mistake sometimes to treat this purely in terms of the economic interests of, of the media, or purely as a kind of contrived game that the right plays. I think it's the stuff that they sincerely believe, in the sense that the right is seeing emancipation struggles as a threat, and there's something to be gained, yes, from whipping up their more conservative audience about that threat to their sort of social hierarchies that they're invested in. I think a lot of the people in the right-wing media believe it as well. These columnists clearly believe it, and we'll be surprised if their editors do too.
0: Yeah, I think that's, you're right, there's an important point that often gets lost, that it's not simply a kind of cynical strategy, but also there's a lot of strong feeling there that underpins it, and that clearly comes through. But when the left or progressives, I guess, respond by the kind of derision or dismissal, that only kind of fans the flames, really, because those authentic and genuine feelings, however potentially misguided, are erased. The boom in culture wars does sound a little bit like the kind of 90s moral panic over political correctness gone mad. Are we kind of seeing the resurgence or the reinvigoration of an old concept or or is this something different?
1: Um, Yeah, I think it's very similar, if not the same. I mean, if there's one thing I want to get across in this discussion is the argument that, you know, we often talk about the culture wars in the left. We talk about it in terms of an all-powerful right attacking us with a culture war in a kind of really conniving way to distract us from certain things because, and, and we're sort of in, in a position of weakness and defensiveness. It seems to me it's more of a backlash, and it's a backlash born of a degree of fear from the political right. I mean, you know, if you think about that slogan that Donald Trump had, Make America Great Again, I mean, there's a sense in that that something's being lost, and that's constantly there in conservative speech and, and, and preoccupations a sense that something's being lost. The nation's under threat, white supremacy's under threat, patriarchy's under threat, is under threat. You know, and they may not put it in precisely those explicit terms, but that, that sense is there. They're taking away our history, they're taking away our culture, they're swamping the population, blah, 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 you know. And, um, Political correctness was that. It was that kind of backlash. Why are they making me talk in language that's respectful to minorities? Can't I just just be offensive like I used to be sort of thing? I mean, this is something very similar, what we're seeing now, I think, with with, with culture war. I mean, if you look at polls on all these issues, I mean, if I was a Conservative, I'd be really worried about this. You look at polls on all these issues, we know about the big difference between voting by age, conservatives are getting the votes of people sort of 55, 60-plus, and and the left, Labour, are getting the votes of people from 40 downwards. But those same splits open up across all these um, issues with regard to race, sex, gender. And maybe look at the Black Lives Matter in particular last year. Those conversations about racial equality were really becoming mainstream They weren't just being talked about in fringe circles, they were being talked about on daytime TV, on the sports coverage and stuff like that. And if I was a Conservative, I would be thinking all these hierarchies that I'm invested in and all these stories about what Britain is and what Britain should be that I tell in order to legitimise my political project, increasingly the young people don't believe them anymore and young middle-aged people don't believe them anymore. And increasingly these kind of insurgent critical narratives like Black Lives Matter are becoming mainstream. And conservatism is, almost, is eroding in a quite tangible way. And it's a backlash against that, that's how I see it. If we step back from the media manifestation of culture wars and look at it at a more structural, societal level, you can see conservatism under, under threat from these various emancipation struggles and lashing out in, in often quite hysterical and dangerous ways.
0: Mm, that resonates a lot, I mean, we've spoken actually we had uh Andy Beckett and I think it was Christine Berry on the podcast a while ago now talking about essentially the death of a conservative ideology and the fact that it was you know it was quite clear that you had a kind of party limping on without a coherent narrative or story of self, and therefore it was kind of clinging and and wildly flailing and clutching at things and I think that how you just described the cultural feels like a definitely an example of that Hannah, same question,
2: yeah, sure I think um. I totally agree with David that it isn't new and it's just a sort of repackaging of something that's been around for decades. But I think there is a difference in how we're experiencing it now in that it feels like it has a lot more traction and it's more successful. And I think it's because that feeling of loss that David's talking about I think what conservatives are doing successfully is tapping into those feelings of loss without acknowledging the material loss that people are feeling and that that feeling might be grounded in. Mm. And that time and time again, you know, as we are writing the report and talking to people, it's uh, the culture will serve as a distraction to steer the conversation away from losses around jobs and housing and healthcare and childcare and all of those things. And instead, they're saying what you've lost is your identity, what you've lost is your history. And I think they're doing that exceptionally successfully, even if it is a flailing. I think it's it's definitely working. And that's not to say that it's not a temporary backlash and that there won't be social progress after this. But I do think it's I'm, I'm finding this period much less funny than uh, than in the 90s, where where we were all cracking jokes about PC gone mad or the loony left or whatever, and it was a lot more jovial. Like I think this is now taking on a much more sinister and a much more effective turn than it, than it did maybe.
0: David, did you want to come in?
1: Yeah, um, just a couple of things to say about that. I mean, I do agree that it's a bit, it's getting a bit more hysterical than it was in the 1990s, and I think that actually that's precisely because the change that the right are worried about is that much closer. I mean, I was a late teenager, early 20-something in the 90s. We thought we were liberal back then. We thought we were enlightened about gender and race and this kind of thing. We absolutely weren't. This generation coming through is so much further ahead on these questions. And I think it's becoming, you know, it's it's a real, it's a threat to the conservative kind of worldview and and these hierarchies. And and so they're a bit more... um, hysterical and worried and rattled than they were back then about political correctness. Then it was just a bit silly to them. Now it's I think it's feeling a bit more dangerous. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to say, I mean, when you look at people who buy into conservative politics, people who vote conservative or people who vote Republican, I mean, a lot of these people, maybe even most of these people, they're not financially insecure, they're not economically insecure. And the appeal to white fragility, or the appeal to kind of you know people's worries that you know women are, are gaining equality, that trans people are gaining their rights, that people of colour might be gaining their rights. The people who are worried about that, they feel invested in those hierarchies. Those hierarchies matter to them. The sense that they can be better than other people on grounds of race, gender, or sexuality are really important to them. And there's, for many of them, if not all of them. It's not a case that there's economic insecurity that they're needing to be distracted from. They've got their economic security, but they do care a lot about these other things. know, the average Trump voter is pretty affluent. And many of these conservative voters, older conservative voters, they've got their secure pension. They've got their, their house. They don't really need to be distracted. But many of them are invested in, in these hierarchies. Because where you stand in these hierarchies, if you're at the top of them, that's a genuine material benefit. You know, which people don't necessarily want to lose. So from their point of view, from their sort of quite ugly chauvinistic point of view, they like to be worried because those workers are being challenged. Mm,
0: I mean, I think they're both such critical points when it comes to talking about who are the winners and losers of the culture wars. I think you, you're right, definitely, Hannah, in saying that it serves for the government, at least as a kind of distraction tactic away from economic issues and towards kind of cultural ones. And, and David, I think what you say is also very true around the really important kind of psychological or spiritual, I guess, to an extent, enrichment that people who who don't perhaps have those material deficits take from feeling superior and f- having a role and a place in a hierarchy that makes sense to them and enables them to feel better than. And we've had kind of countless examples of people on the pod talking about how this plays out across everything from migration policy to healthcare, to education and the idea that it's really difficult to get certain policies passed if they will mean more for everyone, because some people would rather everyone have less yeah. than that other person have more, yeah. you know. No, I think it's really, really important. David, you've written that the culture wars are actually about who we think we are and who mm-hmm. we can extend solidarity to, and I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's about our collective sense of self, I think. In terms of just stepping back from, because obviously the culture war happens at the level of the news cycle and the level of the outrage economy and these outrages that happen for 24 hours and we forget about them and the new one comes along. If you step back from it a bit and think about where culture sits within the wider kind of power structure, the social order and the power structure are about capitalism and class, yes, but they're also about white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity. And and these things like take race for example. Racism manifests itself in terms of police violence, in terms of border violence, in terms of a denial of employment, a denial of housing, in terms of health. But before that, it's socially constructed, because there's no such thing as race, it's it, it's a fiction, right? It's socially constructed at the level of at the level of culture, whether that's in you know, art, music, film, literature, but also in education, in our understanding of history. In that realm, which is being contested in these cult in these culture wars, particularly in terms of how we understand our national history. It's there where our collective sense of self is kind of created. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of produced and reproduced at that level. Who are we as a country? Now, what the Conservatives were able to do really successfully in 2019 was mobilize the dominant chauvinistic collective sense of self that's been generated over decades, if not hundreds of years in Britain. The Conservatives were able to mobilise this, this relatively privileged sort of section of the population of people who were bought into, in a really kind of visceral sense, an understanding of Britain as being a country that is superior than, better than, as evidenced by its heroic history of being the Nazis and... Um, you know, and having an empire and stuff like that. Now, what the culture war does, I think, is, is, is challenge all of that. And beneath all these kind of these daily outrages, what's really provoking that is day-to-day liberation struggles. You know, the toppling of the course of statue didn't come out of nowhere. People have been fighting a long time for that, for the principle that... The city of Bristol shouldn't be venerating a slave dealer and should be respecting its black population as a city. Um, and these struggles will manifest themselves in a new cycle in terms of these little outrages. But what's really important is that people are driving those struggles at a grassroots level on a day-to-day basis. And what those people are doing in that dedicated activism is slowly shifting Britain's self, collective sense of self, collective sense of who we are, if you want to think about cultural in terms of not sort of something that we have to you know endure on a day-to-day basis but a long-term strategic struggle where we might achieve some kind of victory what would that victory look like what it would look like i think is a, collect- a dominant collective sense of self and there will always be people who disagree with it but a dominant collective sense of self which is pluralistic which is inclusive which is prepared to look at history be introspective about it move on from it and change it's that kind of collective understanding of who we are and who we can be you know, a country that is prepared to be inclusive and pluralistic and prepared to change wherever it needs to. And that's what we're getting towards slowly and painfully. And that's what the right are scared of. And that's what the backlash is all about.
0: Mm-hmm. Hannah, would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think I often, this didn't come up in the report, but I think so much about like the work that Downton Abbey and The Crown and programmes like that have done to uphold a certain story that Britain wants to tell about itself. And then on the flip side, what happens when you have on Bake Off, you know, a diverse group of people from around the country in the Daily Mail sort of ripping Channel 4 to pieces? Or what happens when Bridgerton and Anne Boleyn on Channel 5 cast black actors as part of that story? And I think what's, what I find difficult, and what did come up in the report again and again, was both the surprise and the opportunity in the fact that, like we progressives and in inverted commas, are painted as the sensitive ones or the snowflakes. When really, you know, it's conservatives who are absolutely losing their minds that Anne Boleyn would cast a black actress in that story, and. I think that is where we can start to, or like one of the approaches is to really start flipping the script and to say, you know, this is really not that hard. Firstly, there's always been a diverse and multicultural population in the, in the UK. And we want a pluralistic society and lots of different takes on things in the future. And so we're not the sensitive ones. We're just building based on common sense and it's other people who are absolutely losing it over this, and I think that is where we need to take the conversation.
0: Mm, I love that. I think it's so important. And when you were saying that, it did, you know it did make me think that. It takes so much kind of strength and power to move through the world as someone with a marginalized identity, just because of the kind of daily barrage of oppression that you face. And so the idea that actually, yeah, it's people with marginalized identities who are sensitive and in some senses kind of the weaker ones is is, never fails to amaze me because I think for some of the white cis men who are, yeah, as you say, losing it over casting of Anne Boleyn to spend a day walking in the shoes of a a POC trans person, for example, would just be a remarkable thing to see. Um, I want to talk a little bit more just about how the arguments function in practice and get quite technical, because that's one of the things I thought was fantastic about the report. So it mentions the debate format, which the media often uses, and how that style kind of serves culture wars. And I'm wondering, Hannah, if you could say a bit more about what's wrong with that style.
2: Yeah, um, I think one sort of descends from an Italian Oxbridge tradition that we have that's represented in the way that our parliament functions as well, that is really trying to boil down exceptionally complex issues into binary ways of thinking. So for example, I think now, you know, there's a lot of discussion about decolonization, but there are very few spaces that allow for the real substantive complexity of that conversation to be had. It's like bringing people on for two minutes as a talking head and trying to get them to explain you know really quite things that you know you need to read a few books to, to wrap your head around. I think that's one thing. The other tactics that we talked about as part of how it works in practice were around exaggeration and fabrication and distraction. So I think we've already spoken about exaggeration you know commentators wanting to use the most extreme example to kind of make a mockery of whatever the conversation is. We've also talked about journalists fabricating and repackaging source material that they just find on the internet. And we've talked about distraction in the broader form, but I think how it works in practice and conversation is what we've called whataboutery, you know, you might be having quite an intelligent conversation, but then they'll completely derail it. So you might be talking about, um, trans rights when it comes to healthcare and instead a commentator will say well should trans women be allowed to participate in sport and just really take it off in another direction and i think that kind of thing happens because of the debate format because debates are characteristically supposed to be entertaining you're supposed to be able to vote at the end and say who won it and so it's a game of like gotcha like who who can catch the other person out instead of really at least agreeing on the premise of what it is that you're trying to discuss and drilling down into it, you know, where there's just no space right now in, in the current media landscape.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the way these debates play out are really facile and point missing and derailing, as Sandra rightly says. And these are people who are absolutely not interested in a constructive sort of open discussion. I think, I mean, this, this really just speaks to that small number of us who actually have to you know, endure these experiences, you know, and go on these programmes. But I think it's important that what we do in those situations is try and not change the subject exactly, but shift from the ostensible topic to the wider issue and to to try and draw the link, you know I mean? Whenever I went on to talk about and statue, I would be tying that as directly as I could to police violence and border violence and things like that and showing, you know, what, what the connection was. This culture war is something, as I said earlier, that we're fighting on our terms in terms of our day-to-day activism. To the extent that the riot tries to jump in and twist it for an outrage moment, and to the extent that we get drawn into those discussions when we appear on TV or radio, we can always use those opportunities. We don't have to have that five-minute debate the way they want it. They can make their points, they can frame their questions in the, in the normal sort of silly way. But we can use the opportunity we have to speak to make those connections and to link it to broader arguments. And I think in doing that, what you say to the audience, and obviously a lot of those audiences just can't be reached, but a few of them you can reach. And I think what, what you can show them in those moments is that but actually the presenter of this programme is missing the point and is trying to have a kind of facile discussion. And actually what was being presented to you as some silly left censoriousness is actually quite a serious issue, which this presenter is is almost preventing you from from hearing about properly. But the guest is trying to help you understand. So we can always use those opportunities, I think. Notwithstanding the wider debates, afraid.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I wanna, I'm going to move on in a sec, but I just wanted to ask. I mean, I think in particular for you, Dave, because I know you've experienced this. Like when it comes to being the voice on those on those shows and in those hot seats. There's obviously a conversation to be had right around like how we take care of ourselves and how we gather the kind of inner strength to rise above it for kind of lack of a better word I mean I uh, phrase I think what you're describing there is is brilliant and definitely the right approach and how do we resource ourselves to be able to hear things which are often kind of direct threats to our own humanity or existence and take the high road.
1: Yeah that's that's, that's really hard I mean you know as a person of colour and, and people can talk from their own experiences. For me as a person of colour, when people talk about race, I feel it in a really visceral sense, you know, because mm. it's going back mm. to my big experiences of racism happened when I was a little kid, like five, six, seven, at school and the kind of abuse I got in, a, in an almost all-white school in a very racist area. So these are moments where we have to navigate in a really personal sense as much as a political and a sort of rhetorical sense. And I think You know, whether you're someone who appears in the media or whether you're someone who's being asked to debate these things in some other context, you have got the right to say no if you're going to find it too stressful, you know. As I say, the the really important work is the activism that's done at the grassroots level. If you're going to find it too stressful, if you think it's going to be toxic, if you think they're going to be abusive, if you think they're going to try and turn you into a punch bag, which they frequently do, which they try to do with me, you're allowed to duck out of that, you know, Go in if you're feeling strong, if you feel you can handle it, but you're allowed to duck out of it as well. And I think we have to be, you know, within our circles, within the left, quite sort of open about that kind of thing. That it's it's, it's not on you to risk your well-being on a given day just to be a punch bag on talk radio or something like that. And these moments are important. We can make the best of them, but it's not the be all and end all. And, um, you know, we have to value ourselves a bit in those moments as well.
0: Absolutely. So following on from that then, because I know in the report, Hannah, that um, Align produced, there's a really fantastic kind of decision making checklist for figuring out when to say yes, when asked to do something. So I would recommend listeners check that out. But I was, I was hoping you could walk us through the kind of section that talks about what tactics progressives can use to engage with the debates more effectively and some of those really practical tools?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I didn't talk about earlier was how the cultural arguments work in practice. I think the most important commonality between all of them is that progressives are set up to look like a sort of prudish, censorious bully or ridiculous clown. And I think the top line approach that progressives need to use is just to, to not be those things um by using humor by flipping the script by coming back to that you know it's not me who's sensitive why are you reacting in this way sort of turning it back on them and really sort of exposing the other side for their own prudish uh, censorious bullying natures you know like Lawrence Fox, for example, I can't think of anyone who fits that description better. Yeah. So I think that is really important. I think knowing what you can speak to and what you can't is really important. Um, you know, we were told some really interesting statistics during the process of putting together this report around, um, you know, for example, trans people are 0.5% of the population, I think it was, and refugees are 0.4%, or even 0.04%. I should fact check that. Um, But I think that really brings into perspective like the outsized nature of the public discourse around sections of the population that are really quite small. You know, why are they losing their minds over this? I think it's really important to sort of ground it in reality and by naming the connections to the material and the substantive arguments, like David says, naming the material sources of loss. I think Akala is fantastic on this like um the segment that he did on good morning britain around knife crime came out multiple times and i'd really recommend anyone watching that um it's just a sort of 13 minute dismantling of Piers morgan's sort of argument and it's incredible so i think all of those can work and then in the long term i do think like david was saying you know this has been around for decades we can't burn ourselves out over different messaging strategies in the next two to three years. Like this will be around for the coming decades. And it's thinking more long-term about what will set us up for success over the long haul. And that will be organizing in public education and looking out for our own outlets and spaces where we can allow for nuance and we can allow for people to change their minds um, and to admit that they were wrong. There's a really interesting example brought up of Nigella Lawson who came out in support of trans rights last year after JK Rowling's abominable summer of tweets um and then Nigella Lawson was scolded for writing an article 25 years prior that was transphobic and Nigella sort of owned it. She apologised in a public forum on Twitter. And it just seems like that was the one example of that happening that came out, like, while we were researching this report, and how can we create more spaces for that to happen and for the conversation to be ever-changing and less fixed?
0: Mm, I mean, it certainly seems necessary. David, um your thoughts on that? And also, I guess it would be really useful to have some more kind of do's and don'ts for folks kind of doing this work because I think it's not just really about having these conversations in the media is it? it's over dinner tables as well and in the pub and in the park it's it, I think there's so much that's really transferable about this conversation for progressives in general so yeah I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah absolutely I, you know that, that, that last point that's absolutely right these conversations are happening everywhere and in a way as left um, and as people engage in particularly in these kind of liberation struggles I think we have to think about now, where else can we have this conversation with people? And I don't think the choice, you know, should just be, it's important to have them within our own social circles. And it's important to have them um, in these media kind of moments. And I think the choice should be between the two. There must be ways in which we can engage with wider audiences and have these cons- discussions in a kind of constructive way, in a way that brings people with us. I mean, just thinking about what kind of language and what kind of demeanour and what kind of, how we bring ourselves to these discussions. The person who influences me the most on this is Edward Said, a Palestinian academic, who talks a lot about the way in which the Middle East was represented in Western culture and how that generated prejudices towards the Middle East, which would then justify certain foreign policies towards the Middle East or justify colonialism in the Middle East. So they're talking very directly about how culture is connected to material power. right? And he would critique at the level of culture, but for those reasons because he's worried about, you know, concrete wars and imperialism and stuff like that. And he was a great communicator at this. He used to, you know, go on to I mean he wrote these fantastic academic books, but he would go on daytime T V, he would go on radio and get involved in these discussions as a professor of comparative literature in these kind of spaces, you know. And the way he would talk, which I think was really effective, is he just brings his humanity and he brings his empathy and he brings his kindness and he speaks at that level. He doesn't get too combative. He stands up for himself. But, you know, what these people want is pugilism. They want to fight, you know, they want to row. And then they want to clip that and stick it on YouTube or whatever, you know, and have such and such a, you know, Julia Hartley Brewer destroys woke academic David Ware and all this kind of thing. And just not, just not playing that game, let them be the embittered ones because that's who they are. They are being hateful and embittered and also just lacking empathy because why else would you oppose anti-racism, right? Why else would you po- oppose trans rights if it wasn't for a lack of empathy? Well, we can be the ones who bring the empathy, who bring that that kindness and that humanity because that is where we're coming from. And Sometimes you can overthink it when you get in these debates. I'm going to be really tough. I'm going to beat them, stuff like that. Just be yourself and bring you know, the values and the temperament that brought you to these kind of politics and brought you to these kind of struggles. And that way I think you connect with people because I think most people, the people in the middle are not angry about it. They just want to make sense of it and understand it. And you reach them better if you step out of that pugilism and just, you know, just talk as a person.
0: I think that's brilliant advice. Thanks so much, David. I just want to make a little bit of space at the end here in case there's anything that either of you want to add that we've not covered.
2: Yeah, um, I don't know. I really loved I think that's such a good mantra, that let them be the embittered ones. Yeah. We should printed on the t shirt. (laughs) 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 Or something I really love that. Um and I think that came out a lot in our interviews, you know, talking about what David was saying earlier about the self care aspect of being a talking head, you know, one of the people we spoke to who does a lot of these interviews said that she had to kill the part of her brain that processes shame. And I, I just thought, wow, like that's the difference between you and me. You know, like that's that's how she gets up and, and does this day after day. And, and, like, and I think there's something around, like you were saying, Aisha, the strength it takes to be that person in the firing line, but also the love and care we can have for ourselves and each other in that process and how we can let that shine through. I think we saw that last year through so much of the aftermath of the black lives matter uprisings you know people getting interviewed and of course their emotions were showing through because it was such a difficult time um and i think that was part of the power so i think strangely with the do's and the don'ts ultimately like absorb all those rules and then throw them away um (laughs) before you engage in any of these things you know absolutely david final thought
0: (laughs) yeah um
1: People may, not, may or may not remember, in about, I think it was the year 2000, um, something called the Commission on the Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain, I think it called itself, produced a report about the state of racism and this kind of thing in, in the UK. And it was kind of a, a follow-on from the Macpherson report. And what they said, it's called the Correct report, if people want to look it up, I think Running Mead Trust was involved in it. And what they said was Britain's effectively at crossroads in terms of how we understand ourselves collectively. And there's two directions we can go in. The first direction is one where we open up a more sort of pluralistic, inclusive sense of self as a country, and then we can deal with some of these problems. The other route is we can double down on a chauvinistic, exclusionary sense of what our country is and if we double down in that on that route, we've got problems in store. And they were absolutely right, weren't they? They were absolutely vindicated. We had Labour being really kind of, you know, tough on asylum seekers and all this kind of cowardly politics. And then we had UKIP. We had Islamophobia through the war on terror. Then we had UKIP. And then we had Brexit. And now we have the culture wars. I don't think it's too late for us to go back to what the PRIC report recommended, which is to... To create a new collective sense of ourselves, which is pluralistic, which is inclusive, which is egalitarian. And I think something that people listening to the podcast might want to think about is what practical steps can we take to do that? Because I bet there's a lot of different things. Yeah, thinking about history, having conversations about history, but there must be a lot of other stuff that we can do. And let's have that goal in mind. How do we achieve it? How do we create that new sense of self and displace the old chauvinistic and one that the Tories are mobilizing so effectively through Brexit?
0: Absolutely. I think that's a really great kind of call to action to end on. We talk a lot on the podcast about the fact that so often the solution to the many challenges that we're discussing are huge and holistic and kind of society-wide. And I think having, as you say, a kind of, I guess, an abolitionist lens on thinking about what the culture war battle, I guess, means long-term for us as progressives, um, enables us to perhaps kind of lift ourselves out of the day-to-day battle and and have a kind of Northern star, which is is more uplifting and, yeah, empowering for all of us. Yeah, we're going to win this. The question is
1: how, you know, it's not whether
0: and how we take care of each other and uh, ourselves on the way. Sadly, that is all we've got time for this week. It was so wonderful to speak to both of you, and it's great to be back. Um, A stonking first episode. Thank you both so much hannah thomas uase thank you first of all for joining me if people want to find out more about your work where can they go what should they read oh thank you um they can go to
2: www.wealign.net and i'm at hannah thomas on twitter and at hannah made on instagram Without an H on the end of Hannah, very important. Um, Thanks for having us. It's been a really interesting conversation. Very great.
0: And I appreciate the inclusion of www there. I really do. Uh, And David David Waring, same question. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, How can people get more David Waring?
1: Um, I don't do... um social media anymore because like
0: because of all the things we've been talking about
1: <laughs> yeah that's my brain <laughs> and it's really it really stops me from working as well but um i mean if people want to read my stuff i've got a column every two weeks uh at navara I've written a few things for the guardian as well i've got a book about britain's relationship with saudi arabia in the gulf stage which bears no relation to this um whatsoever but yeah that's the kind of thing i'm, I'm writing about and talking about.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, lovely listeners, for tuning in. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. And I can't recommend the Culture Wars report, Divide and Rule, enough. You can find that on the Align website and also on the Neon website. We'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Nef on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.